very hard to maintain a voice for preaching when you are forced to sing so passionately. <laughs> now, none of y'all forced me, by the way, but if you have sat and listened to those words and you absorbed them and you sang them like they were powerful, you get swept away in God's grace and you cannot help it. I want to look today at the next major event in the span of the Big C Church. Now, when I'm always talking about church, I'm talking about Little C is a physical building. It is a place. It is Smithfield. Big C Church means the body of God, the people of God, the believers of God. So when you hear me reference the church today, I'm referencing the body of believers. What would you all call the next, maybe last, big event in the life of the church? What would that be? The second coming of Christ. How on earth can the second coming of Christ and what we consider the end of the world or the apocalypse, big dramatic Hollywood terms for Jesus' second coming, what on earth would that have to do with a missional lifestyle? What on earth would that have to do with being missional today, today, right? This is what I'm doing now. That's way off in the future. We're going to learn today that there is no future or past with God. There is no, it's coming a hundred thousand years from now, but it could be coming tomorrow. Because Jesus comes like a thief in the night. And that is what we are going to explore today. This is Peter's second letter to the New Testament churches at large in 2 Peter 3, 8 through 13. So if you want to open that up as we get into this intro. It shows us a patient God who desires life for all of his creation. And he doesn't just desire physical, human, earth suit, as I call it, life. He desires eternal salvation and life for each one of his people. Now, does he know that many won't make it? He does. But the option is for everyone. We'll get into that later. It's a call to a holy and godly life and a call to take the gospel out on mission so that we may hasten Christ's second return. An example of how godly living leads towards assisting the salvation for the lost and Jesus' return. We know we have no power apart from God and only God saves, but he uses us, his human agents, to assist him, right? This is an example of a hope for a new heaven and a new earth where evil shall be no more. The promise that whatever happens at the end, a new heaven and a new earth is where the righteous will abode. And that casts out fear. Since we long for Jesus' return, let us be holy and missional people, accepting God's patience, working so that all may be saved and draw that day near. That is our goal. Our lives as Jesus' agent of work are to be obedient and godly so that the work is done sooner and Christ may be hastened to us. Let's dig into this passage before we go any crazier. Let's look at 2 Peter 3, 8-13. We're going to read it once through all the way through. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. 
The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming day, the coming of the day of God? Because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. God is good all the time. This passage has a lot to unpack and a lot of what we consider cosmological scale of stuff. The world ending heavens and bodies and whatnot. But above this all is still the same premise of hope and peace for the believer and the call to reach those who don't have that hope and peace. Let's start in verse 8. There's going to be four main points today. Let's start with our first one. Verses 8 and 9. God's timing is patient for our salvation. He is patient to save the lost. He is patient with the person who may take a whole lifetime to come to them. He is patient with the family member who hears and hears and hears and doesn't get it. He is patient with our sin. We have such a hard time differentiating God's time from our own time, right? That's right here in verse 8. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. We fail to realize that He is eternal. He has always been, and He will always be. Eternity is a concept we are not going to grasp until we see it, if we are believers in Christ's gift and His eternity. Now, there's two ways we can experience eternity, right? You can experience it in the gift of God's grace, in a place prepared, a new heaven and a new earth for the saints, or you can experience it in a place of complete separation from God, in fire and pain. People don't like to talk about hell. It's scary. But it is the very real alternative. At this last second day, you either go to be with the Father or you go to be below. And there is no alternatives to these two fates. So what do we do about it as a church? Do we accept that and we say, okay, yeah, I get it, I'm good. But then look at your coworker who you love dearly. I don't know about them. Do I want them to burn? Can I do more? That's where we're going today. We cannot hold God to our feeble timetables. We just can't do it. We can't put God on, well, you're not operating on my time. He doesn't have our concept of time. It doesn't exist. What seems slow or fast to us is not a part of God's timing. Does that mean he ignores the needs of his people when they need it in time? No. 
He never ignores what we need. And He will give the things to us in our time when they need to happen. But on His scale, there is no time. So it is foolish of us to say, He changes things too fast. Or, why does He wait so long to answer my prayer? Oh, the world's changing too fast. Politics are changing too fast. Technology's changing too fast. Everything's just going so quickly. Or, why can't people catch up to where I'm at? Why can't this church catch up to this church? Why aren't we growing like this other church? This other church gains 12 members every single Sunday. And we might gain 12 every 20 years. What's the problem here? Our timing is not God's. We cannot hold God to our timing. You know why? Because look at verse 9 and the first part of it. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you. We cannot count slowness as God counts slowness. It's pure and simple right there. All things arrive on His time scale, and His patience to endure our sin has already lasted a lifetime. The sal- we deserved death for our sin immediately after Adam and Eve fell. He cannot look at it. He cannot abide it. He cannot stand it. He cannot tolerate sin. It must be wiped out of the world. God cannot look at it. So what's He going to do with these sinful, horrible little people? He put His salvation plan into action immediately after the fall. And He made us a way to atone. Now, we won't reach perfect sanctification until we're with Christ, right? But we begin that process the moment we become a believer. We remove the sin from our life and fill it with God. That's how He can deal with us. That's how He can approach and love and care for His children. Is because He made a way out. He made a way through it. Yes, He can't look at sin, so He made a way to where He can look at us. He loved us so much that He put a plan in action to where He couldn't look at the one thing He abhorred most. It's like somebody making you your least favorite food on the planet. I don't know what that might be. And they made it for you knowing that you can't stand it. And you said, you know what? I absolutely hate this food. It's disgusting. But I love you. And I love the fact that you made it. So I'm just going to put a little salt on it and eat it. That's exact, not exactly. That is a metaphor for what God has done for us. He said, I love you, my children. And you did this bad thing, but look, I got a plan and we're going to go through it together. That is the hope. That is our message, right? That is our mission. Is to exclaim that across the whole world. This salvation is the plan of our life. Our hope and our mission is that very fact. Such as his patience God had his patience to endure that sin. Think of through the Jews. If you go back through the Old Testament, how many times do we see this number? The Jews, they come up to a great high, such as Solomon, and they fall right down into Babylonian exile. They come up on the big high with Saul as their king, and Saul falls completely apart and has to have David replace them. Up and down, up and down. Look at the book of Judges. 
Look, if you want a wild ride of the Israelites becoming good with God and bad with God, read the book of Judges. It's a crazy story. He endured all of that because he loved his children. He gave them chance after chance after chance after chance after chance. Patience. Now think about the 2,000 years since he's been gone. How many people have expounded over the world and made mistake after mistake after mistake after mistake. And he still is patient. God is still good. He still holds us with so much tender love and care. That's an Elvis song, right? I didn't mean to make that reference. But the God of creation that made the earth and made the heavenly bodies to be dissolved cared enough about us to set this plan in motion. Jesus did pay the ultimate price for his sin on the cross, however. That is one time and for all. That is the end of discussion. Jesus paid that price and we could never pay it. His patience in this passage is for the second return. He's not patient to enact his plan. It's already been enacted. Jesus came, Jesus conquered, Jesus rose from the grave. Period. The end. That is the final word. But he is patient with us now because he wants to see each one of us come to Christ. Does that mean he doesn't know who will and who won't? Absolutely not. He knows. He knows from the moment we're born. But does he not offer that hand to each person? Absolutely. He offers to each person. His patience is for the second return, and he desires all to come to him. Look at the second half of verse 9. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. That has always been his wish. That, think about Adam and Eve when there were only two. Do you think he did not wish for those two to remain in fellowship with him? Of course he did. He wished for those two to be with him in his presence for the rest of eternity. But he gave them the choice to fall apart and immediately put a plan in to save them. Does he not do so now? Every single day with the people all around us. The importance of our missional lifestyle and mission then becomes important. All you need to hear is not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. How then are people going to know? That is our mission. That is how we move forward. God is delaying the return so that many more may come to him. He could have decided to come back, pick a major world event after World War II. When the world seemed to have fallen apart, he could have said, okay, I'm coming now. They need it. Put it in an American context. He could have come after 9-11 when the world felt hopeless. He could have come after any major cat catastrophe and said, they've endured enough. I'm coming down and we're ending this thing. But why didn't he? Because he wants to bring as many as will come home. He's patient he is patient because of his love. Whose job is it to take the message and assist in this then? Is it not ours? Why? Because that judgment day will not be delayed forever. He is endlessly patient, but there is an end to his patience. There is a time set. 
There is a day set when Jesus Christ will come back and judge the whole world at once and say, this is it. It is coming. He knows that many will refute him and fall away, but his gift is extended to all. The option is for all people. He has known from the start the fate of each person he created. He seeks to offer the last hope for salvation before the final end. I say the final end, and that sounds like an oxymoron, but lots of things end, don't they? Ends of eras, ends of important people, ends of countries, ends of continents in some cases, in a case of natural disaster. Lots of things end on a global scale, but there is one true final end coming. And that's the next great event of the church for the believer, the second coming of Christ. We must be people that share that hope daily and intentionally and share that warning. That the patience doesn't last forever. We must take it also to those who have never heard. That is a strong part of our calling. It takes both. Last week we talked about being missional and intentional in our daily lives. This week we continue that missional lifestyle. But realize that we have to go. We have to go. All people must here, and we'll get into why. Let's read verse 10 again together. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. It brings us to our second point. Jesus' second coming will be sudden, releasing the heavens and exposing the earth. It's going to happen like that, and he will be back. The final end, the second coming of Christ, will come when we least expect it. No one is going to say he's coming right now. No one is going to say he's coming in 100 years. No one is saying he's coming to Israel first. No one will expect it. When no one can possibly know, we are told in several other scriptures of this coming of its swiftness and its unexpectedness. So let's look at a couple of these. Referencing a thief in the night, let's look at Thessalonians 5.2. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Good thieves don't get caught. And Jesus is, ironically, the best thief because you will never see him coming. He will strike and come when no one can claim credit for it. Look again at Matthew 24, 42 for 44. Therefore stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore you must also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming in an hour you do not respect. Let's keep going. It's unknown time. Matthew 24, 36. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. So you're going to tell me that somebody's going to say, oh, on June 24th, 2078, God's coming. It says right here, but only the Father knows. Not even the Son or the angels know when he is going to enact his second plan. Look at Luke twenty or Luke twelve forty. 
You must also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. So you see this over and over. He makes it abundantly clear through different authors across the New Testament that no one is going to know when this is happening. So we can't wait. There is no wait. There is no, oh, I'll do it later. Oh, there is no, I have to wait till I have money to go on this mission trip. Oh, it's, I have to wait till there's vacation time till I can go on this mission trip. There is no, I have to get home because I have a roast in the crock pot and I need to get it out. I can't have this conversation with this lady at Kroger. I just can't do it. I got to go home. None of that. Because he comes like a thief in the night. This is all the more reason for us not to waste time with missions. Many have tried to name that day or be set up for Jesus' return, but it's biblically clear that no one can know. On that day, all of the heavenly bodies will dissolve and pass away, finished with their purpose to God's glory. Listen to that imagery one more time. Let's go back through 10 real quick and just listen to how descriptive Peter says here. Then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works on, that are done on it will be exposed. Can you imagine? Since you don't know when Christ is coming, right? You don't know when He will arrive, walking outside in the middle of the day or night, and the heavens, especially at night if He chooses at night, just melt with a roar louder than you could possibly I can fathom. And the stars just explode and melt away. You really would think it's the end of the world for what else could possibly be. But it's to show that He controls all of that. It's to remind us that God is in control of all of that first and He destroys all of that before He considers what He's going to do with us after. All that happens before His patience runs out with us. So how much more important are we to Him? If he has patience enough to wait until all of his heavenly bodies have been destroyed, how much more does he love us than these great celestial bodies in the sky? Things that we can't fathom make us feel so small compared to there's stars that are 12 times as big as our sun. And yet we are more important than anything out there because he has patience for us. The part that directly affects us, however, is how Jesus includes, and the earth on the works that are done on it will be exposed. The last part of verse 10. This gives an illustration of the heavens, heavens kind of blocking the view to the earth in a way. And when we remove the whole earth and what we do on it is now exposed. Can God not see what happens on earth because the stars are in the way? Absolutely not. What he's showing us here is an illustration that when all of that is removed, all that's left is you. And everything that has my attention will be you. It will all be what is happening here. What are my people doing? And what do I have to do to save those that have yet to come to me? His full attention will be on us. So are we not going to be godly Christians? Are we not going to be missional Christians? Are we not going to be people that when the heavens melt away and His gaze bears down on us, we say, listen, God, I see you. I'm here. Help. Not, oh no. 
Some people will be like that. They will see the world that is exposed and think, I've got to hide. But there's nowhere to hide from God anytime, but especially then. We will stand ready to be judged at that point. There's nowhere to hide our sins, our decisions, our lives. All is exposed. The second judgment would be upon us at that point. Can we stand proudly and say we've been obedient? We've been missional? We've exhibited the fruits of the Spirit? He comes like a thief. And the time is now. These two ideas coexist. The patience of God drawing those who haven't come to Him to His fold, to His salvation, that exists. But on the same hand, just as only God can do, the time is now. Christ is coming now. He is here now, is He not? Is the Holy Spirit not working every single day in the lives of the believers right now? So we can't wait for God to get here. He's here. We have to get on board. Period. Because one day that patience is going to run out. And when he gets here, none of us are going to see it coming. It's like a sucker punch from the back. Only God is not malicious in that way. The Greek here in this, ter- in this word, let me see if I say this right. Herethesatai, meaning specifically, it will be found. That's from this ESV study Bible of mine. It's a big help. I recommend it. He's not only seeing what's on the surface. He's seeking out the deepest parts and they will be found. It specifically relates to it will be found. It will be seen. No matter what you try to hide, no matter who you're trying to hide with, it will be found. So what better cause... If you can't be a godly person out of love and respect for your king, be a godly person because you're afraid of what he's going to say when he finds you. I wouldn't recommend living like that. He'll show you how to love, and he'll show you how to love him. But you best believe that there will be a fear of God on each one of us. Can you imagine God right now descending in the middle of the church, looking each one of us in the eyes and knowing every second of our entire existence? And he says... Let's see what's under the hood. Can you imagine that scrutiny? Can you imagine that? So stand godly. Stand ready. Have done the work. God's return will dissolve the heavenly bodies and there will be no place to hide on earth. The earth and the works performed here will be seen by all. Let's get into section three. Our third point. A godly and holy life hastens the day of God, bringing our eternal salvation and the dissolving of the heavens. What does this mean then? What of it? We hasten the day of God? What does that mean? Let's look at verse 11 and 12 and remind ourselves. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. It's verse 11 and 12. 
The second coming should be a motivation for a godly lifestyle. We've already talked about that. It's a sanctification journey and a missional life. To grow closer in your relationship to Christ is to grow more missionally. There's been hundreds of scholars throughout the world. Think of the Pharisees and the Sadducees that had a textbook close relationship with God. They knew everything there was to about Him. But did they exhibit any of the fruits of the Spirit? No. To have a real relationship with God is to be missional and to desire to be missional. Is that to say that there aren't hundreds of Christians who have a real working relationship with God that aren't so caught up on the missional part? That's a true statement. And people can live like that. But the closer you go to God, the more you want to talk about Him. It's a beautiful thing. That love and that hope, the answer to the end of the world is what we talk about to people. It's the hope we share with people. We know that when the, that the Lord waits for that day and will expose our lives in the final judgment, so what kind of people shall we be? We shall be people of holiness and godliness. Our obedience and readiness to spread that message has an interesting effect. If we live what godly and holy lives we can, because we'll never be perfect, sanctification comes at the end, we actually bring the second return of Christ closer. We can move a date that God has set closer. Let's put it this way out of my Bible again, my study Bible. Therefore, from a human perspective, when Christians share the gospel with others and pray, and advance the kingdom of God in other ways, they do hasten the fulfillment of God's purposes, including Christ's return. Our obedience pulls that day closer. Does that mean we can change God's timetable? Absolutely not. Does that mean we can change God's mind and make Him reconsider? No. He knows the day He preordained and predestined for His Son's second coming, and that has always been and will always be. However, we're also told in Matthew 24, 14, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Once it has been preached to all peoples and all nations, the end will come. Once every single people group, every nation has heard the word of God, then the end, the second coming, will arrive. If we are then waiting for that day and being obedient to our call to missions, we hasten that day closer. We bring the second coming closer by obeying like we ought to. That in turn sets the heavens ablaze for the last time when we have completed our jobs as His earth agents. We often pray for Christ's return, that we would bring eternal salvation to those left here, hopefully. Yet we have the means as Jesus' human agents to bring that very event closer. Now I've heard several Christians just pray that the world, that Jesus would come back, that Jesus would come back, and a lot of them, I fear, are praying that Jesus has come back so we don't have to do that much work anymore. We just can't get... We, we know we got so much left to do. We know we got so much missions left to do. We know we got so much preaching left to do. 
I don't want to do it. Just come back. Just take the whole world. Or, more commonly, this world is too bad to be redeemed. God, come back and take it. I hear that all the time. Young folks don't know God. This new generation's turned completely from you. I don't know what to do about it. Come back and take us all. We often hear things like that. And sometimes we may say things like that. You want that to happen? Be a missional person. You really mean that? You really mean God come save this world? Get out there and tell people about it. Be that person as you walk your life. And then God may say, all right, it's time. My patience has run out. Let's do this. And where you stand determines that response. We share the message that Christ is patient to save all people and in turn draw the second day closer. Our godly living hastens Jesus' return as He will come back when all have heard the word of God. He has set the day, but we may in fact draw it nearer by our obedience. Because remember, time to God is not like our time. Dates are not like our dates. He can set it and we can draw it closer. We will see the heavens dissolved and Christ return. That is what obedient Christians will see on the second day. Our last point in verse 13. Even when all is dissolved and exposed, we await a new heaven and a new earth. Let's read verse 13 one more time. But according to His promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Let's be clear right now. The hope of a Christian life is in God's promise alone and never our works. I say, go out, get in missions, do missions, but the physical act of doing your missions is not what saves you and is not the promise we lean on to. The promise is for eternal salvation, right? A new heaven and a new earth to go home to. And we want to share that promise. That is where our faith is. It's not in the physical things we do. You can go on a thousand different mission trips to a thousand different countries. That's not going to save you. It's believing in the promise of a new heaven and a new earth and eternal salvation with Christ. That is what's going to save you. A, admit to God, believe that you're a sinner. B, believe that Jesus is God's son. I see all my VBS people are completely rocking this with me. C, confess the name of Jesus as Lord. That's what it takes. But because of that faith, we want to be missional. We want to be like Christ up until we reach Him. And He will sanctify our bodies. The promises that God made us a new heaven and a new earth to adjourn to either at our deaths or at the second coming. That's another point to bring up. We don't know when we may be called to be with God. So we, in addition to not knowing when Christ brings about the second coming, we don't know when we get called out of here. So either way, you live long enough to see God come home to us here, and He judges you then, 
or you go to be with him beforehand, and then he judges you then. So either way, you're still going to stand under God's gaze and answer for what you've done with your life. Either way, you arrive to the same point. My God, all I have done is tried to do my best. And you have helped me be the best person I can be. And I am all that I am because of you. That's what we want to say. Well done, my good and faithful servant. Whether you meet him leaving this earth or he comes down to it. Either way. That is our hope. That is the message. Is that we can stand before him and say, I've tried to do my best and you helped me and I'm yours. We should never be hoping, however, that certain nefarious people in our lives get their comeuppance, as we would say. We know some people that we want the second coming to happen because we just don't know what to do with them no more. Don't know how to deal with them. We touched on that at the very beginning. But is that a godly mindset to say, come on back and they'll, they'll get what's coming to them, or to threaten people with that? I hear this a lot. You better stop doing what you're doing because God's coming back and he don't like what you're doing. You better get that addiction cleaned up because God could come back tomorrow and then what you're going to look at him and say? While in essence they're right, does that make you a godly and holy Christian? Does that make you somebody that God would be proud of? Is that being a good and faithful servant? Where's the love in that sentence? Where's the peace, the hope in that sentence? Where's the promise of salvation in that sentence? There isn't. And that's not God. He is equal parts wrath and justice, and He is equal parts love and compassion. They coexist as only God can do. We have to present the whole picture of God, regardless of which person we're presenting it to. Because, what did we see in verse 9? So that all may come to repentance. He wants to see all come to repentance. It provides us the means to dispel fear. Casting it out. Because we know that even when He comes again, bringing the heavens to a fiery close, we have an eternal resting place in a new heaven and a new earth. We can sit here and talk about all this and agree and love it and appreciate God's words, right? But be real with me right now. If the heavens suddenly erupted into fire, would there not be the most godly fear you've ever felt in your life? The whole universe has been torn asunder and we're just going to be like, okay, cool, God's coming back. No, we would be terrified out of our entire existence. It would be terror. But we have the power right here to make that terror flee. If we simply remember that all of that is so God can prepare a new heaven and a new earth for those who have accepted Him as their Christ. He made it to where we can have a new place to go once this all burns up. That is our hope. That is our message. That is where we're going. This will be the eternal abode of the righteous saved by grace and removes any reason to fear. Our promise is to this end. Our obedience may hasten the day of God, bring about the dissolving of the heavens, 
and a new heaven and a new earth, all by simply being a missional Christian. This message, that is the message he waits patiently for us to deliver to all people, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Verse 9 again. The end arrives when we have preached the message of repentance to all people. Now, disclaimer, as we always have to do, calling ourselves to such a holy and godly life, calling ourselves to such a missional life, is just an easy walk in the park. A couple days of trying, you're good to go, God's on the right page, we're working, right? No. It's not rarely ever that simple. And you can tell when some people have really dialed into God. You can really tell that their lives are on fire. But it takes work and it takes time. Don't hear me stand up here and say, all right, we have to be missional, godly people so we can bring about the second day. Let's go. Chop, chop, chop. Let's do it now. While that is the call, each person is working with God independently and as a body of believers, right? We have different gifts. We have different strengths. We have different faith walks. We have different testimonies. And is he not going to use each one of those independently to move his kingdom forward and hasten that day closer? Absolutely he's going to. And he can do it right now. That's the beauty of it. No matter where you are, what your faith walk is, what you think you can do and can't do, God's already done it. Just get on the boat. Let's go forward together. That's why we have churches, people. We don't have churches so we can come, sit, listen, and leave. We don't have churches so we can sing a few songs, just so we can sing a few songs. We don't have churches so we can sit here and look at each other and say, hey, have a nice week and go home. We come here to worship the king and hold each other up. What good is a church that isn't helping the church? Hold each other up. Hold each other accountable. Disciple one another. I have learned things from two-year-olds and 82-year-olds. Just listen. And once again, all of this is what I need. All of this is where I need to go to. But the time is now. It has always been now. Because he comes like a thief in the night. The time is now. That is the promise. He has promised us that his patience will eventually run out and that the time is now and that that is the task laid before us. And he has provided us every means. We went through that last week. He has provided every means to be the godly, holy, missional Christian. You're not alone. You've never been alone. You can do it. So many people often don't hear, they hear a, well, yeah, you can put anything you set your mind to. Yeah, you can, you can work through that. You'll, you'll get there eventually. No, sometimes we need to be told directly, it is possible you can do it. God has had your back the whole time. And through his power, you can do it. There's no questions, no conditions, no ifs, ands, or buts. You can get it done, period. And it will be a glorious, loving thing. It's not something that hurts. You're going to have times that you do hurt. But the act of serving God does not hurt. It's only peace. The only time it hurts is when he has to convict us to get back on the right track. 
The act of loving God is not pain. So join it. Be part of it. It's the only task we've ever been meant to do is glorify God and share His name. That's the only task. Because the patience is about to run out and He will come like a thief in the night. The time is now. If we seek release in God's second return, we must be missional people, living lives of godliness and holiness, hastening that day closer. If you're somebody out there who has no clue what this is about or doesn't feel the connection in their heart or doesn't believe that Christ is who he says he is fully, maybe they know every word of it. Maybe you know the whole scripture front to back. Maybe you had grandparents that taught you. Maybe you had mothers and fathers that taught you, but you yourself don't get it. Listen, he is being patient for you. If you're somebody who doesn't believe in Jesus Christ, He is being patient for you. He is withholding the entire end of the cosmos so you will come home. How incredible is that? Come home. And if you don't understand what that means, talk to somebody who understands. If you have no clue what's going on, talk to somebody who does. A good place to start is right here but have somebody help you. Because lots of new Christians get a Bible and they start pouring through it and it makes sense. But just like the Ethiopian eunuch, right? How am I supposed to understand if somebody doesn't explain it to me? I've been reading this for hours, but I needed you to come along and talk me through it. Is that not our job as well? Believers, reach out to the non-believer. Guide them home to Christ. He has the power. He's already convicted them. He's had the plan for his life. He knows their whole future and past, front and back. We simply get on board and speak what we need to speak. And he does the rest. But jump on board. Lead people home. Lead people to Christ. No person is different or wild enough that God won't use them. Be part of that mission. If you are an unbeliever, come home. See and feel the promise of an eternal life in a new heaven and a new earth, away from the fire. Come home. And Christians, lead them home. That is our whole gospel. If you take anything out of here, it's that the time is now. I've said it a thousand times. I'll say it a thousand more if I have to. The time is now. Praise God that he has been patient long enough to give us this opportunity and that he remains patient until we have reached the ends of the earth. We'd love that this is what he has called us to do. And he will show you how to love it if you don't. But if you're a believer, you love what God is doing in your life and doing in the lives of others. And you might feel bad when you're not connected with it, but you don't know that you're not connected with it. Pray, read your scriptures, ask a fellow discipler. Join the mission. I need to join it more. I can do more. We all can. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, you're greater 
than anything we can imagine. You're greater than our pain. You're greater than our fear. You're greater than our anxiety. You're greater than the cosmos that you put together. You're greater than our hearts and our minds. You are powerful enough to change the world and erase the heavens in a roar of fire. And yet you are patient for your children. And we cannot sing songs of praise loud enough to make a dent in how much we need to praise you more. Praise be to God Almighty, for He is patient and loving and kind. And we can say that for the rest of our lives and won't even make a scratch. We love you so very much. Show us how to be holy and godly to the point where you have destined. Show us how to be missional. Show us how to speak to the person who needs to be spoken to. Show us how to be around the people we don't want to be around. Show us how to be people on fire for you. There's a passion that only you provide descended on this church like a cloud or a pillar of fire. Bring this whole church alive. Bring the church across the world alive. If somebody from another place has to come to us and wake us up, send them. Turn our hearts around to people who are missional and holy and godly. Grow us closer to you. We love you more than anything, our King. Go with us into the rest of this week, into the rest of our lives, and never let us waste an opportunity. Always let us be focused on you no matter what. We love you and we pray all these things in your blessed and holy name. Amen.